Welcome to journeywithjesus.net. My name is Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled, For the Weak and the Weary, A Spirituality of Imperfection, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, February the 5th, 2006. A few days ago, hospice care experts advised my family that my mother will likely die within a few weeks. Mom blessed many people with her self-sacrificing ways, including loving service as organist and choir director at our small Presbyterian church in North Carolina. Measured in worldly acclaim, she led an unremarkable life. If you googled her name, for example, you would only get no entries found. Nor did mom live an easy life. Born in 1922, she experienced the Great Depression as a teenager, married at the age of 18, then endured the tumult of World War II. After raising six children and 33 years of marriage, she braved a divorce at the age of 51 that forced her to enter the job market for the first time. With no marketable work history, she spent 20 years at a clerical job earning close to minimum wage. Most confounding of all, in her 60s, mom began a long slide into the tentacles of clinical depression from which nothing disentangled her. Hospitalizations, drugs, shock therapy, counseling, the support of her entire family, church, and certainly prayer. Last week, she stopped eating. When nurses tried to feed her, she clenched her mouth shut or turned her head. When she did take a spoonful of peas or a bite of tangerine, she hid the food in her mouth like a dip of snuff and then spit it out half an hour later. So death, an outstanding debt that we all owe, will end a discouraging struggle for my mom and my family. I will grieve for her and miss her, but not without hope. I believe that God will at long last welcome her to a new life of healing wholeness after her fair share of life's bumps and bruises. In the Old Testament reading this week, the prophet Isaiah depicts a mighty God enthroned in the heavens who looks down on humanity as so many tiny grasshoppers. His God brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. He blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. Then turning his gaze to the night sky, Isaiah worships this God who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Isaiah chapter 40, 21 to 31. But Isaiah's mighty God, so absolutely other, does not disregard the lowly, the insignificant, the obscure, or the unimportant. Be assured, he writes, that your way is not hidden from God, for his might is matched by his tenderness. Unlike us, God never grows weary or tired. His empathy and understanding of our human frailties knows no boundaries. Isaiah acknowledges that you might be weary and weak, 
tired and faint, that even vigorous youth sometimes struggle, stumble, and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. A few months ago, I started reading at some length in the desert monastics of 4th century Egypt. Given that these oddball saints are so far removed from our own time, place, culture, and even our practice of the Christian life, I kept wondering what drew me to them other than historical curiosity. A thousand pages later, I realized that I loved them for what John Chrysopkis calls their spirituality of imperfection. If society's holy grail of perfection, moral, spiritual, financial, physical, psychological, familial, vocational, whatever, if society's holy grail of perfection is ultimately what Anne Lamott calls the voice of the oppressor, and I believe that it is, then these desert eccentrics point, pointed me to the liberating way of embracing brokenness without shame or embarrassment. My own, my mother's, or even the world's, they told stories that explain myself to myself. The early ascetics fled the corruption of church and society to seek Christ in the lonely solitude of the remote desert. If you've spent any time in a real desert, and I have, you can imagine the intensity and severity of their chosen orientation. Sometimes they lived in communities while at other times they chose open combat as solitary hermits. They sought what John Cassian called integrity of heart or integral wholeness. Seeking personal transformation and not merely theological information, they favored the voice of experience over theoretical claims and human healing over book learning. But the conclusions of their spiritual experiment are not what you might expect. With a fascinating mixture of remarkable candor, brutal realism, unqualified empathy, and wry humor, they described how they experienced in the vast nothingness of the Egyptian desert a cacophony of voices in the interior geography of the heart. They sought wholeness, but they discovered brokenness. In the famous words of St. Anthony the Great, the father of monasticism, they advised that we should, quote, expect trials until your last breath, end quote. Their reports from the front lines of spiritual battle reveal a disarming transparency what Cassian calls without any obfuscating embarrassment and that never despises anyone in belittling fashion for human failure and frailty. As I review what I underlined in Cassian's institutes and his conferences, here is a sampling of their self-diagnosis. Lethargy, sleeplessness, unsettling dreams, impulsive urges, self-justification, seething emotions, sexual fantasies, pious pretense that masked as virtue, self-deception, 
clerical ambition and the desire to dominate, crushing despair, confusion, wild mood swings, flattery, and the dreaded noonday demon of acedia, which is a wearied or anxious heart that suggests close parallels to clinical depression. As if that were not sufficiently unnerving, Cassian further admits that, quote, there are also many things that lie hidden in my conscience, which are known and manifest to God, even though they may be unknown and obscure to me. He wondered, for example, why a monk who joyfully renounced great wealth to enter the monastery later succumbed to intense possessiveness or irascibility over a tiny penknife, a needle, a book, or a pen. He observed monks giving each other the silent treatment when they got angry. Or again, what provoked a brother's anger at a dull stylus? Or consider this description of a church service that included, quote, spitting, coughing, or clearing our throat, or laughing, or yawning, or falling asleep, end quote. Or finally, why is it, Cassian's friend Germanus asked his elder, quote, that superfluous thoughts insinuate themselves into us so subtly and hiddenly when we do not even want them, and indeed do not even know of them, that it is very difficult not only to cast them out, but even to understand them and to catch hold of them, end quote. Where, in other words, was the off switch for a psyche in overdrive? Despite this unrelenting realism about human foibles, the desert mothers and fathers did not live like helpless or hopeless victims. Far from it. They exuded confidence in God's unconditional love, exhibited tenderness and patience toward one another and to their own selves. They steadfastly avoided the faintest hint of judgmentalism and rejected every manifestation of extremist zeal. They chose not to compare themselves with others or even to be overly anxious about their own progress. They believe that we can make genuine progress through vigilance and trust in God's grace, even though, paradoxically, the more you mature, the wiser you become regarding your own many fault lines. We are, concluded Cassian, not angels, but only human beings. And so advises Mother Syncletica, who died about the year 400, Quote, we sail on in darkness, end quote, confident in Isaiah's reminder that our way is never hidden from a God who is infinite in his understanding and unconditional in his love. And now for further reflection. In what sense do you agree or disagree with Anne Lamott that perfection is the voice of the oppressor? Consider the ways we often deal with our many imperfections. Denial, shame, blame, judgmentalism, 
self-justification and pious cliches. Contemplate the saying of St. Anthony the Great, expect trials until your last breath. Fourth, why do Christians sometimes shoot the wounded? And finally, for further reflection, see the book by John Chrysavgus, In the Heart of the Desert, The Spirituality of the Desert Fathers and Mothers. For my book review this week, I review the book by Benedict Ward, The Sayings of the Desert Fathers, The Alphabetical Collection, Kalamazoo Cistercian Publications, 1974, although I'm reviewing the 1984 revised edition, 269 pages. For 30 years now, Sister Benedicta Ward's translation of the sayings of 131 of the earliest desert monastics has served as an indispensable text for English speakers. In addition to her brief foreword and short biographical introductions, at least when they're known, the book includes simple maps on the inside front and back covers, a short glossary of terms, a chronological table of key events in the development of desert monasticism, a bibliography that unfortunately is all too short and badly dated, and then two indices of key concepts, peoples, and places. The 131 monastics and their sayings themselves stand alone without commentary. For contemporary extrapolations and applications, one can turn to the fine books by Archbishop Rowan Williams, Where God Happens, and John Chrysavgus, In the Heart of the Desert. For more complete primary resources, see the two works by John Cassian of the 5th century, his short institutes, and then his longer conferences, in which Cassian relates what he learned from and about the earliest monastics. Beginning in the third century, three monastic experiments emerged in Egypt. St. Anthony, an uneducated Copt, is generally hailed as the father of the hermit monasticism centered in Lower Egypt. Thanks to the book by Athanasius, The Life of St. Anthony, we know as much or more about Anthony than any, other, than any other of the early ascetics. Other monks cooperated and collaborated in Cenobitic monasticism. Pacomius, who lived from 290 to 347, is generally credited with instigating this communal form of flight to the desert. And then finally, in Nitria and Scetus, small groups of monks live near one another under the direction of an elder or an abba. In addition to Egypt, desert monasticism also flourished in Syria, Asia Minor, in Palestine, and of course much later in Europe. It's easy to dismiss the eccentricities of a Simon the Stylite, who died in the year 459, who sat atop a 50-foot pole outside of Antioch for 40 years, or the ascetic excesses of food and sleep deprivation. But we honor these saints for their, their unique experimental spirituality, 
that explore just what the, what the words of Jesus might mean. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. They stopped at nothing in their lifetime of striving to redirect every aspect of the body, mind, and soul to God. And that is what they talked about in these sayings. In these sayings, we are taught, according to Anthony, to expect temptation until your last breath. That means doing battle with one's inner appetites, drives, thoughts, attachments, and desires. It also means the further you travel on the Christian journey, the more you realize the breadth and depth of the struggle. Consequently, these monastics were above all things modest, non-judgmental, and deeply tender in regard to our human weaknesses. They were reluctant to take Christian office. They made the certainty of their death a force for good in life. They were modest in what they thought they might know about Scripture, eager to keep silent, and appreciative of the diverse ways that each monk worked out his own salvation. Ultimately, and in contrast to so much Christian spirituality of today, these desert monastics recommend a hidden form of discipleship, the focus of which is the interior geography of the human heart, regardless of where the body finds itself. I have found these ancient saints to be wise guides for our contemporary world, and I heartily recommend to you Benedicto, Benedicto Ward's book, the Sayings of the Desert Fathers, the Alphabetical Collection. For film this week, I review the movie Turtles Can Fly from the year 2004, a Kurdish film with English subtitles. Kurdish director Baman Gobadi situates this poignant film in a Kurdish refugee camp on the Turkish-Iraq border just before the outbreak of the U.S.-Iraq war. The film revolves around a 13-year-old boy nicknamed Satellite for his enterprising ways. Satellite barters, buys, and installs TV dishes so the village can get foreign news about rumors of war. He organizes the village children into an economic cartel. They clear fields of landmines, for example, which they then resell and stack discarded empty artillery casings. Parallel to this big picture of village life among displaced Kurds run an, runs an important smaller story. Satellite has a crush on the orphan girl Erin, who along with her armless brother Hengoff takes care of the blind toddler, Riza, whom she bore when she was raped by Iraqi soldiers. Only in the last few minutes of the film does the war begin, and of course the Kurds were thrilled for liberation from Saddam by America. But when you learn what happens to Satellite, Aaron, Hengoff, and little Riza, you understand why in the final scene Satellite turns his back on the American Army vehicles as they roar through the muddy village in the rain. As his buddy exclaims, I thought you always wanted to see the Americans. 
I think Gobati intends a deeply human commentary rather than a political statement here to the effect that seen through the surreal experiences of these children, war is hell on earth. It is difficult to know which is more real or more terrifying, the might nightmares that Hengoff has or the reality of their waking hours. Turtles can fly in Kurdish with English subtitles. For poetry this week, we've posted a poem called The Tables Turned by William Wordsworth. Up, up, my friend, and quit your books, or surely you'll grow double. Up, up, my friend, and clear your looks. Why all this toil and trouble? Books, tis a dull and endless trifle. Come, hear the woodland linnet. How sweet his music on my life, there's more of wisdom in it. One impulse from a vernal wood may teach you more of man, of moral evil and of good than all the sages can. Sweet is the lore which nature brings, our meddling intellect, misshapes the beauteous forms of things we murder to dissect. Enough of science and of art, close up those barren leaves, come forth and bring with you a heart that watches and receives. William Wordsworth, The Tables Turned. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, February 5th. And be sure to join us every Monday for an essay on the biblical lectionary, a book review, a film review, and a poem. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.